Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 205 being recorded on Wednesday, January 22nd. 2020. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason Scott Show listeners. Well, uh, those of you that are regular listeners have probably realized we have, it's been a little while since we put out a show, um, and the reason why is my colleague Jason here has been traveling like a crazy man. Uh, this is true. I have my... Uh annual um, fun start to the year with the whole uh, CES NRF uh, marathon, which I just got back from. I thought this year you weren't doing CES. What, what, uh, what happened? You had a client call and rushed you out there? I did end up, yes, having to go for a shorter than usual stay at CES, but I, I did end up having to make an appearance. It happens when you're the chief digital retail commerce strategist that goes, goes that way. Yes, when you yes, it's true. When you have that many words in your title, uh, like unplanned trips uh, are part of the bargain. <laughs> cool. Well, we thought we'd use most of the show to kind of catch up on that, uh, and then try to work some news in there too. Let's start at CES. Any uh, first of all, big question: Did you get any new gadgets? You know, uh, a disappointing year for me personally, and part of that maybe because it was a shorter trip. Uh, the the stuff like the stuff I tend to discover that um, like I personally want is maybe deeper in the CES catalog, and I maybe didn't get to all of those booths this year. I kind of had to hit the main main milestone booths. Um, so yeah, nothing super excited. I got uh, I I maybe have a little um, personal problem hoarding chargers and cables, and so there there are some nice new. Um, third-party uh, chargers for the MacBook. So I did get a new Anchor and a new Hyperjuice 100-watt uh, charging systems. Nice. Um, yeah, no no super important purpose. But yeah, so I have some new chargers that I have to hide from my wife. Um, I don't think she even cares about the spending. I think she just cares about all the space that the unused chargers take up in, in our life. Yeah, there's a drawer there where they all go to live. I Yeah, yeah. Uh, in my um, workshop, it's more of a a system of drawers for all of them. <laughs> by age, you have like the 1985. Yeah, uh, I mean, people people laugh at me, but then when we need to find a 30 pin Mac charger for a iPhone three, I have one. Boom! I got exactly. it. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, so yeah, got some new chargers, and I did. This is kind of CES adjacent. Um, but I did get all new um, networking hardware for my home office. Uh, so I think you and I both did internet uh, connection upgrades for the holidays, and I added a fancy new firewall router uh, access point and switches. Very cool. Yeah. Are you gigabit? I am. So so Comcast just added gigabit in my neighborhood, so we upgraded to gigabit. Uh, and then I'm using um, this uh, cool new uh, 
device called the Unify Dream Machine, um, which is uh, from, I, I want to say it's uh, Ubiquity Networks, uh, and they, they do a lot of uh, commercial Wi-Fi equipment for like schools and institutions and things. And so uh, uh, this is a, a, a Wi-Fi access point, a firewall, uh, and and a ma- set of managed switches that are all all controlled um, from their commercial software. So way overkill for for a home network, but fun for tinkering. Yeah, I think I've seen one of those. Is it a? Uh, it looks like a little cylinder. It is, exactly. So historically, like they make they mostly make rack mounted equipment, and uh, uh, this is the first time they've they've uh, made an all in one that that is supported by their sort of um, business level software. And it, it looks like a cylinder. And in fact, it reminds people a lot of a, of a discontinued Apple Wi-Fi access point. And so there's some mm-hmm. people from that, that were big fans of that, that uh, I forget what that was called, like the air. I had one. I yeah. can't remember what it's called in there. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah. So people, people think it's the, the spiritual successor to the Apple product. Cool. What else? Any interesting commerce news at CES? Yeah. Uh, I actually thought it was a, a reasonably important year for commerce. Um, uh, like the super readers digest version on this show. It's the consumer electronics show. Uh, I personally have been attending for 32 years. Um, it's the largest trade show in the U S like 200,000 people attend. Um, Many years ago, it was a buying show where people from retailers would go to figure out what they're going to carry for the year. Now it's mainly a PR show where they try to generate buzz for new products to sell more new technologies. But it's where a lot of consumer technologies were launched for the first time. So like the DVD player and the uh, if you go back far enough, the VHS uh, tape system and the whole VHS beta war played out at CES. Um and stuff like that. And the Apple, the Apple iPhone was famously launched during CES, but not at CES, as uh, Steve Jobs sort of did some clever counter-programming. Um, so people go uh, both to like sort of do trend spotting and see if there's any major new consumer electronics platforms that are coming down the the path. Um, and from that standpoint, I would like there's one big one that had the buzz. I'll say for the end. Um, but there was a lot of uh, smaller, more tactical stuff that I think is going to have a meaningful impact on on uh, retail and particularly digital merchandising at retail. Uh, so most of the listeners of this show are probably familiar with e-ink. If you ever had a, a or currently have a Kindle book reader, it uses e-ink, um, and it's a it's an important digital display technology because uh, it's dynamic. You can change the image that's on it. Uh, it it's reflective, so it works in super bright sunlight, and it basically takes no power to display an image. So you need electricity to change the image, but once the image is changed, it literally is moving ink around on the display, and then you could turn off the power, and the ink stays where where it was. Um, and so uh, it's great for for not using a lot of power in an electronic book reader. It, it's great for having high visibility, even in bright sunlight. Um, but a, a, a very common retail use case is it's the main display technology that's used for all the digital fact tags that I talk about all the time. Um, and uh, one of the big drawbacks of e-ink has historically been that it's only black and white or only black, red and white or only black, yellow and white. So very limited 
color palette. And so you couldn't do really pretty displays. You couldn't use it for really pretty signs. Um, and this was the first year uh, that they were showing full color e-ink that looked very um, vibrant and high fidelity. And so, um, you know, we'll see if that, like, you know, maybe we'll have some color book readers in the near future. Uh, and uh, I suspect we'll see it trickle down to a new generation of electronic uh, uh, price labels and fact tags for retail stores. Um, so that was an interesting technology. And a way cooler display technology um, was released by Delta Airlines, of all people. Um, and and so this is a new technology to sort of replace a, a video monitor in a public area. Uh, and it's called Parallel Reality. And so Delta Airlines found this technology and invested in the company. And they, they've announced that the first commercial deployment will be in the Delta lounges at the Detroit airport later this year. And what this technology does is it lets 100 people stand in front of a TV screen and have each of them get a different custom image that they see. So so very precisely, depending on where you stand, you see a completely different image. So the use case for Delta in this lounge is all the customers stare at the flight status display and they all see a display that, that only has their flight information or prominently highlights their flight information. Okay, how does it know who's looking? Yeah, so there. So first of all, as soon as you describe this to someone, they're like, uh, this sounds like it's going to be some kludgy gimmick, and I was super skeptical. So two halves of this problem. The first half is, can you really display an image that that is high fidelity and looks like discrete for each person? Um, and I, I went in with very low expectations, and I was kind of blown away. Like, it it totally works. Um, the the demo they had there, like, there's, like, the pixels weren't tiny, so you could kind of see the pixels. Um, and the display is made up of a bunch of, of multiple smaller displays, so you could kind of see the frame, the internal frames. So I'd say it wasn't perfect, um, but they were super open to saying, yeah, we know those are the visual flaws. Like we already have more advanced prototypes that solve those problems. And what we deploy in Detroit later this year is going to not have any of those those visual artifacts. But basically what it's using is beam forming where they're essentially like each pixel is a projector um, and they can fire different color lights at different angles. So by knowing exactly where your eyeballs are relative to the screen, they can send you an image that's different from everyone else. So that's the display technology is it's kind of like a projector inside of a television or, or thousands of projectors inside of a television. Um, and it works remarkably well. And then your very uh, pertinent question, how do they know who and where those eyeballs are to decide what to show each person? Um, and the answer to that is a combination of Wi-Fi, RFID, and your mobile phone. So this is not this won't work for an anonymous use case. Uh, in the Delta model, the reason they're doing it in the lounge is everyone has to check into the lounge and show that they're a member. So when you walk into the front desk, you scan your mobile app. Um, they're using cameras similar to an Amazon Go setup to track where you are in the lounge and they know who you are because you were holding a mobile phone with your unique ID on it to check in. Um, and then they're able to deliver your, your unique flight information to you, to you. So it, um, 
it, it's a kind of a combination of, of uh, Amazon Go for the identifying the person and their location and this new parallel reality display technology for for beaming the different messages. And so it, uh, it it works better than I expected. It seems pretty darn close to real. We'll see if they're really able to get this in a live live rollout in in uh, an airport this year. But like if it all works, it's pretty easy to imagine a number of uh, use cases for public displays and checkout systems and things like that in retail where it would be really handy to be able to show different images to different customers on the same monitor. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, Is this the big one we were waiting for or no, there's more to come? Uh, no, no, more to come. Uh, okay. So the another interesting technology that like, was kind of spooky as Samsung was showing this, um, these avatars that they call neon life. It's these artificial humans. Uh, and so, uh, you walk up to all these five or six foot tall monitors and it's, there's like a person in each monitor and they can talk to you and interact you with you. And they look like completely real people. Like, and so you would assume this was a video, but these are computer generated people that are extremely lifelike, um, and so the idea is uh, that you could potentially walk into a retail store um, and, you know, there might be a artificial intelligence help agent um, that looks like a real sales associate that you're basically looking at through a glass window that can talk to you and, and be more human. Um, that was the kind of use case that Samsung was pitching. The The more interesting use case to me is, like, can you uh, – render different shapes and sizes of people and put apparel on them. So, you know, could you, could this be kind of like a, a digital mannequin uh, scenario for retail stores? And uh, it, it was scary lifelike. And the one thing I would say is they would call this an advanced science project. So these avatars apparently took a super long time to build. And they, they say that this technology is still three or four years away from being completely commercialized. Um, did they have natural language parsing? Like, could you talk to them? And they Alexa did, stuff? but that wasn't part of the the magic. So they were using they were using other Samsung artificial intelligence. Like, in fact, Bigsby is their artificial intelligence agent to like decide what the the avatar was saying and to interpret what you were saying. Um, and so they weren't claiming any like you know new new evolution there. What was new about this neon life? technology was how lifelike they could make the visual representation of a person. And essentially, you know, it's, it's like the next step to like not paying actors to be in a movie and instead having these, these digital avatars that, that will be acting in all the movies and stuff. Um, but I, you know, if it, if it gets commercialized, I can imagine a retail use case for that. Um, the next product that really caught my eye, and this got a lot of the buzz at the show, and I, I think this was a, a darn impressive product, came uh, from L'Oreal, and it's called Perso. Um, and Scott, you may have followed this because I know you try to stay close to the beauty and cosmetic space. I do. Um, but so the idea here is personalized beauty and cosmetic products that are formulated at home. So so they the initial concept has three different products. There's a liquid lipstick product, there's a uh, liquid foundation product, and there's a moisturizer. So each of these is kind of a 
uh, a metal cylinder, like um, like one of those uh, Yeti mug type things, a, a metal cylinder. Um, and using an app, you say, I want this color lipstick. And, you know, out of a set of holes in the top of this mug, um, that exact shade of lipstick or several lipsticks come out that when you then blend them together with a an applicator or your finger, like mixed to the particular color that you ordered. Um, and so the foundation comes out in a color custom color that you ordered. The lipstick comes out in a custom color that you ordered. And the moisturizer comes out in a custom formulation that you ordered. So it maybe has, you know, more moisturizing or sunscreen depending on the the environment you're in or the, the weather in a particular day. And so the, to me, the one that made the most sense and the kind of, you know, coolest use case is the lipstick. Um, they do things like you can point your camera at your outfit and it will recommend shades of lipstick that go well with your particular outfit. And then it can produce that lipstick for you. And, and so the reason I thought this was pretty impressive is a, it seemed to work really well. People that tried it were, uh, seemed to think it was not a gimmick that it was, you know, that they were quality products and that they were totally legitimate. And, you know, I've spoken to lots of women that think that the, the custom shade of lipstick on demand would be totally useful. And I've, I spoke, I've spoke to some women that think the custom foundations would be useful. Um, and I, I just think we're, we're at this inflection point when more and more products are going to be customized for each individual user. So whether that means, they're fabricated custom at a factory and, and quickly shipped to you, or they have the ability to be customized in your own home. This is essentially a, a 3D printer for cosmetics or an inkjet printer for cosmetics. Um, and so I, it, to me, it seemed like one of the first viable custom products in this category. And one little nuance that I thought was really clever about the whole thing uh, the the cylinder like could totally sit on your makeup counter at home and it, and it seems like it would fit just fine but what happens when you want to take your lipstick with you and put it in your purse like that wouldn't work very well so it turns out the top of all of these cylinders is removable and it's magnetically attached to the cylinder so after you specify a color and it mixes some of that color up you can just take the top of the cylinder off which is kind of the size of a makeup compact throw it in your purse and take your custom color with you so um, pretty clever. And then you buy refill cartridges, just like you'd buy refill ink for an inkjet printer. That's where all the money is. Yeah. Oh, well, for sure. Um, but so I thought that was super interesting. Uh, when you get into the health pavilion, um, there, there were a number of players, like one that caught my eyes was called a uh, DNA nudge. And the, these guys are essentially doing a DNA test. Uh, and then they're helping you select, uh, foods, diet, nutrition that match your unique DNA. So again, going back to this notion of customization that like, uh, you know, the diet you select, the foods you buy should all be predicated based on your, your underlying DNA that they help you help you find. Um, Did you just come back and say, error, you are 99% uh, an espresso beverage. That is funny. So I have, um, uh, carefully avoided doing any of these DNA tests <laughs> because I, I actually think there's some like significant privacy concerns. Um, and I like, I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm overly cautious, but like I, I haven't wanted to just give my DNA to one of these for-profit 
companies with like dubious privacy policies. Cool. I don't know. What about you, totally. Scott? Are you totally in on 23andMe? Do you do it like every month to see if your DNA is changing? I have. I've done um, both. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Okay. Yeah, I, 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 I'll I don't be honest. I would be totally interested. I don't have any uh, murders out there I'm worried about. Yeah. Well, I lead too much of a boring life to be very worried. But I. But here's the thing. You could have an interesting relative that you're yeah. throwing under the bus by doing this. Yeah, they shouldn't do their crimes. All right. Fair enough. Um yeah. So, uh, again, I, I can see it. I might be being a little silly on that, but I, I haven't wanted to do that. Um, so then, you know, it's the car thing is a big thing here. They, um, like the car, car tech now tends to get launched at CES, not at the auto show. Um, so, you know, there's, there's, some, you know, some interesting, uh, electronic prototype cars that may or may not ever see the light of day. Um, the the huge thing I noticed this year in the car pavilion is that every car seemed to have an Alexa integration. Like that seemed like that was taking over as the the like new cabin tech that everybody was marketing. Um, and so I think Amazon announced that there are now over a hundred thousand consumer electronic devices that have Alexa embedded um, uh, from more than ninety five hundred unique brands. And of course, uh, the new device with Alexa in it that I imagine you're going to need is the Lamborghini. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I think that will round. Finally, out. tipped me over the edge. Yeah, that'll round out your stable just fine. Um, there, like speaking of Am- Amazon integrations, like Amazon has a couple booths at the show. They have a, a booth that's primarily focused on the Alexa and a lot of third party, you know. Uh, demos with that they have a, a booth uh, in the home automation section dedicated to key and all the last mile solutions and things um, but in the amazon booth one of the interesting ones was um uh this this cpg company uh wreck it beckinser um commonly called rb uh they make a bunch of uh products like baby formula um, and, uh, finish, uh, is their big brand of, um, uh, dishwashing detergent. Um, and so they have upgraded all of their packaging to have dash replenishment built in. Um, so when you get low on baby formula, the box that you bought your baby formula in just recognizes that and automatically reorders more baby formula. And when you get low on those, those, uh, um, pods of, of, uh, finished dishwashing liquid, uh, the the package automatically orders more for you. Very interesting. Um, the uh, I saw the uh, Lamborghini thing, and uh, it was funny. There was like a poster which had like some amazingly handsome Brad Pitt Italian looking dude, and uh, he said, "Alexa, I'm hot." And then she, <laughs> and then she she knew to turn on the air conditioning. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Context. So it yeah. made me wonder how often is. Jason uttering Alexa, I'm hot to his devices. Yeah. Uh, I feel like that's not even the most concerning thing you need to worry about me saying to Alexa. (laughs) Um, I mentioned the Samsung Bigsby earlier. Uh, uh, Computer vision was a big thing. I felt like half the booths were doing facial recognition for some nefarious purpose. Uh, But Samsung built it into their refrigerators. So, Uh, In the past, they've had these smart fridges that, for example, had a webcam in them. So you could kind of like when you're in the grocery store and couldn't remember if you had eggs, you could turn on a webcam and see the inside of your refrigerator, which 
I always like to point out probably wouldn't help you because your eggs are probably in a in a opaque carton carton and you can't see how many are in there. Um, but uh, that pesky detail aside, they're now using Bigsby to do um, image recognition and take an inventory of your refrigerator. So the smart refrigerator knows like that you have a quart of milk and how many times you've taken it out and likely how much milk is left in that quart. Uh, so that was interesting. There were a thousand last mile solutions at, at CES. So lots of people like with clever approaches and not clever approaches to porch piracy, to delivering to your refrigerator, to delivering to your garage, to your car trunk, um, uh, drones and robots, um, kind of, a. uh, improved efficiency for for uh, BOPUS orders, for store pickup orders, um, and a lot of technology for, like, building mail rooms um, to notify residents when they have packages, all sorts of stuff like that. So this is not really a retail show, and so it was just interesting to me how many um, booths were there, like, specifically solving a commerce problem around the last mile. Um, so all those were interesting tactical things that I saw at CES that I think may may uh, make an appearance in the future of retail. But by far the biggest platform that that you know was the most strategically important um, that really had its coming out party at CES this year is the new wireless technology 5G. So they've been talking about it at CES for a number of years. They've had prototype products, but this is the first year that they have. Um, uh, mass-produced products that that meet all the certifications and work on networks that are deployed in the real world. So this is kind of the the first time that five G was truly commercialized at CES, and you know I I suspect in in the show's heart of hearts, like if there's you know one news cycle that they want to win, it's the you know the wave of coming five G products and that everyone needs to throw out all their wireless devices and buy shiny new new 5G devices and that it's going to magically change the world. And there are crazy stats that they, you know, um, cite about uh, how much faster 5G is than 4G. So, you know, hundreds to thousands of times uh, faster bandwidth, way lower latency, way more devices that can hang on the same networks. And you listen to all this and you go man, 5G is going to change the world. It's the most important technology of all times. And that's mostly the articles that are getting written about it. But as I talked to more engineers and kind of, you know, really started to understand what was going on, uh, I actually am now um, somewhat bearish on uh, on 5G. I think it's overhyped. Yeah. Yeah, they always, the one I see the ad for is there's like some remote surgery over 5G and you're like... Yeah, I don't you, think 5G is going to solve the dead spots. In fact, I'll probably have more dead spots because I won't be on as many towers. Yeah. I'm not sure I'm going to be yeah. an early adopter of remote robo-surgery, but if I am, I'm going to insist that they have a wired connection to the robot. And if for some reason they can't have a wired connection, I would way rather have a Wi-Fi connection to the robot than a 5G connection to the robot. Yeah, we're going to belt and suspenders that puppy. Yeah. We're not... Yeah. Yeah. So it's going to be a long time before you're ever going to do surgery on me with 5G. But like, here's here's the the huge wrinkle in 5G that makes it kind of a meh technology for me is um, 
you know, all these wireless signals are over particular parts of the spectrum, right? And so like cellular signals and most of what we call LTE or 4G is uh, in the 600 megahertz to 6 gigahertz range, depending on which company and what what bandwidth they own. Um, And so 5G uses that same bandwidth and it uses some new bandwidth that the government just sold the carriers that's at a much higher frequency. And so uh, it's what they're calling this uh, millimeter wave frequencies. And so this is 20 gigahertz to 95 gigahertz. So way higher frequencies than the traditional 4Gs. Um, and all of the dramatic improvements in uh, bandwidth that they're talking about only happen on those new uh, millimeter wave frequencies. So the the 5G technology works on the 4G frequencies, and it is faster, but it's kind of incrementally faster in the same way that 4G was faster than 3G. It's So call it 20 to 100% faster. And then you get this, you know, hundreds to thousands of times faster when you get on millimeter wave. And... Um, so a couple problems with millimeter wave. Number one, it's mostly not built out and unavailable. Like there, it's, there are rumors that the, the iPhone that comes out this year that will be the first 5G iPhone may or may not even support millimeter wave. Um, but there's very uh, limited coverage of millimeter wave in the United States. Like, like when uh, you know, a company says they have coverage in a city, that's probably one block that they cover with this millimeter wave technology. Um, and the much bigger deal is that high a frequency wave uh, is blocked by virtually any kind of structure. So not only will it not go through walls, it won't go through windows. Um, so you won't ever get millimeter wave signal inside of a building, for example. I think you're going to have to do your surgery in a tent. Yeah, exactly. So a legitimate use case is... Uh, hey, T-Mobile can compete with Comcast for internet bandwidth for Scott's home. And if you buy it from T-Mobile, what they're going to do is put a millimeter wave antenna on the roof of your building and run a cable inside of your house and convert it to a Wi-Fi signal inside of your house. And because the millimeter wave can be really fast to that antenna on your roof, like they can legitimately compete with your your cable modem. Uh, but you are not going to have a phone that you walk around in your office that's, you know, downloading movies uh, in a second uh, uh, inside of a building because of millimeter wave. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. So a lot of infrastructure to be built to, to solve this millimeter wave problem. Yeah. Yeah. And those, those uh, like they need many more antennas and the antennas need much to be much closer together to really build out coverage for millimeter wave. So it's a, a huge national infrastructure problem. Uh, and it doesn't seem like any of the carriers have really committed to like saturate their market with millimeter wave yet. So again, you know, most of what the carriers are talking about when they say 5g is 5g over the existing, uh, 4g bands. And it's a little better. Like I'm sure we'll all enjoy it, but it it's, it's by no means game changing. So that's, that was kind of my, my CES recap. I think most people would say, oh, the big thing that's going to change the face of retail is 5G. I'm pretty convinced it's actually not. Um, but I do think a bunch of these display technologies are potentially uh, interesting. And I really think that that this trend of more personalized products is super interesting for commerce. 
Cool. So then you shot straight from Vegas right over to New York. And what uh, would you see it in RF? I did. Uh, so, yeah, I got to do a prolonged New, uh, New York trip this year. So I got there a little earlier. Um, you, as you know, you and I were nominated for an award uh, for best uh, uh, retail media. Um, and we were one of the finalists. So I actually went to the award ceremony on Friday night. Uh, and I'm I'm sorry to report that we we did not win. Boo. Yeah, so not a very credible award, obviously. No, I'm teasing. Uh, <laughs> it was actually the the first year of this particular um, uh, inter- enterprise, and what they're trying to do is recognize suppliers for the retail commerce industry because most of the awards are targeted at the retailers. So that's kind of I appreciate that, and that's interesting. And it was a, a very well attended event for the first year, um, but that sucked me into New York early. So then I did the whole show. I got to walk all the show floors and my um, limited time recap on all the show floors was that it was a very incremental year. So rather than dramatically new stuff and new technology that you know didn't exist at the show last year, most of the booths in the main uh, exhibit halls were uh, here's our 10 percent better version of what we showed you last year. Um, and, and a, a surprising amount of it was really oriented towards cost reduction and operations optimization. So I would say like the, it was rare to see customer facing stories and improving customer experiences at retail. It was mostly about taking costs out of supply chain and taking costs out of operations and staffing and, um, and increase automation and th- you know it, things that are important to retail, but frankly, things I would argue like that's been the play in retail for the last five years, and most of the good retailers today have taken most of the costs out. And you know, so now I feel like to really move the needle, you you need to be thinking about your customer experience and improving that. And I did not see a lot of great solutions for that on the NRF floor this year. Um, the one kind of new use case that showed up in a bunch of booths is uh, what I'll call a smart shelf. Um, so this is like Amazon Go-like technology. It's like a shelf that either using cameras or sensors or cameras and sensors knows what's on the shelf and it knows what you take off the shelf and it can probably recognize you. And so sometimes this is used for self-checkout, but way more often it was just used for inventory management. Um for knowing when something was out of stock or helping navigate customers to the right product or or knowing when a product's on the wrong shelf or all these kinds of use cases. So I, like, frankly, didn't think the juice was worth the squeeze walking the two main trade show floors at NRF. Um, the, the floor I had the most fun on is this innovation pavilion that they've had for the last couple of years, but it was much bigger this year um, and to me, like all the exciting, interesting stuff was was definitely in this innovation pavilion. And so this is smaller companies tend to be startup companies, a bunch of companies uh, from other countries like uh, Israel was particularly well represented. Um, and, you know, here you were seeing a lot of last mile solutions. You were seeing a lot of um, uh like using cameras to uh, to solve fitment and returns and um, and things like that. So I just I felt like there was a lot more interesting new approaches to customer experience um, in the innovation pavilion than on the main 
main uh, InterF trade show floors. What was the strangest thing you saw? Strangest thing I saw. Probably should have come to rehearsal and gotten that question ahead of time so I could have thought about it. Um, yeah. Uh, wait, I'll tell you an odd experience I had. So you know I have this weird uh, affinity slash fetish for these digital fact tags. Mm-hmm. And I keep predicting that they're going to be a big thing and they never are. Yep. Um, so, of course, I, att- I visit all of the exhibitors at, this bo- at the show. And there's like six or seven... Uh, big manufacturers and then probably 20 little manufacturers of these things in NRF. Um, and so one of the companies, I'm not even going to name them, uh, they're, they're noted in my mind because they were the first tags that Amazon used in the four-star store. And Amazon has changed vendors and they, they now use a different vendor. But this first vendor um, had a lot of interesting tags and some new new technology in their booth. Um, and the way I remember what I what I see at the booth in order to kind of type up my show notes is I take a picture of the booth and then I type my notes below the picture in uh, Evernote. So I tried to take a picture of this booth and they tackled me and told me that no photos were allowed. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, OK, do you have like a brochure or something I could take? No, no, we don't have a brochure. Uh, so I'm like, so wait you have a giant 30 by 30 booth at this show and you paid a bunch of money to come here and like you don't in any way want anyone to remember who the heck you are or be able to contact you after the show. <laughs> we were never here. Yes. I, <laughs> Did so, they make you delete the picture? Uh, no. And I, I mean, I could have, t- but I, I mean, I just didn't even want to take a picture at that point. I was, I, I just thought that was so funny. Like, Ten years ago, that was like a t- super common thing, and people are worried you're going to steal their intellectual property. But I feel like if you have intellectual property that you don't want anyone to know about, don't buy a trade show booth. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> weird. That is weird. See, I knew you had one in you. Yeah. Uh, so that stuff was all interesting. Uh, I went to most of the keynotes, and uh, I feel like this is going to be a Captain Obvious comment to you, but um, I mostly went to all the keynotes, which are all these big retail CEOs. Uh, and I've mostly decided that it's a complete waste of time going to any of these shows and sitting in on the, on the CEO keynotes because nobody ever said like, they're all perfectly media prepped and they mostly play commercials about their businesses. And no, you know, nobody says anything very like informative or, you know, that, that isn't already on the public record at these things. So I don't know why I always get excited to hear, you know, some retail CEO speak when, like in reality, like it's not bad. It's just, it's just not valuable or super interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. They're, you know, at some point they're public companies too. So they're in their quiet period by the time the show comes out. So they can't even really talk about, you know, anything oh, yeah. that's no, not I don't even, and, yeah. I don't even fault them, but I, I, it's just tough. Right. And so you had like uh, Kevin Plank, who is, you know, the founder of Under Armour and, you know, he recently stepped down as CEO, but he's like, like chief brand evangelist or something. Um, one that got like a little heat, uh, Michelle Gass is the CEO of Kohl's. We'll talk about this later, but like, you know, uh, Kohl's kind of underperformed a little bit for holiday. And, um, and so that's, that's interesting. But, but she also won the, the NRF gala award as the person of the year. Um, and there are people that are pointing out like, what's the state of our industry of like the, the person of the year is like a CEO that's like led a company for five years that mostly has been in sales and, and market cap decline over that entire five year period. 
They haven't closed a bunch of stores. They've closed less stores than a lot of the other retailers. No, no, I would so say they, they have performed better than most of their peers in apparel. I think that's true. And that's why it's kind of news that their, their uh, performance is starting to to soften. Uh, the, the one thing that maybe was newsworthy about her keynote, like obviously they get a bunch of buzz for being the first ones that were all in on like allowing Amazon returns in their store. Um, and uh, I don't know why this gets so much coverage. I mean, it's an interesting tactic, but to me, it's not a game-changing thing. Um, but, uh, you know, a big question has been, like, how valuable is that to Kohl's? Like, is it working? Um, and and she gave a full-throated defense of the tactic and said that it's working uh, quite well and that we're happy we're doing it and that we've expanded it to all stores. But then she said, like, two sentences that didn't, like, seem like it totally jived with that. She's like, it it definitively gets more people into our store and some of those people buy stuff. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, yeah, it was okay. very vague. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I don't know. Uh, so that was a little interesting. Um, it was interesting. There, there's a lot of pictures on social media accompanying that article and they showed a coal store and it had a tiny little coal sign. And then it was just surrounded by Amazon promotional materials all throughout the front of the store and then inside the store. Yeah. And I think one of the things that's be- happened is like, you know, Kohl's has always been heavily promotional. Um, uh, like I think when you return something to Amazon, you get like a 50% off of a Kohl's item uh, certificate that, you know, they're trying to juice you to, to buy something presumably at super low margins um, when you're on that visit. Um, so that stuff got a lot of buzz. Uh, as you know, but listeners may not know, um, a lot of my time at, at, at NRF gets booked up with these these various committee and uh, council meetings that are going on. Um, and so, uh, you know, we're members of the Digital Council, which is a big group of of uh, uh, people that are primarily focused on digital shopper marketing. Uh, and so, you know, they have a long meeting at the show and, uh, you know, I'm still on the board of, uh, what used to be called shop.org now called the D- digital advisory board. Um, and, and, uh, we have a long meeting during the show and there's usually some interesting content at those meetings. Um, so I would say both of those meetings were good and I'm probably biased because I was the speaker at the digital council meeting. Um, and I, I gave a presentation about like what Western brands can learn from China. So sharing a bunch of interesting tactics that are going on in China, um, that my hypothesis is, you know, that people ought to be trying in, uh, in the West. And so, uh, is this a salty way for you tried to get your, uh, your prediction of QR codes out there? Potentially, be, I'll do anything I can. You pretty much talk about it the whole time. I, I'll do anything I can to win the forecasting battle against you, Scott. So yeah, um, uh, no, I did not. I did not hit that that hard, uh, but I got good feedback uh, and I enjoyed doing it. It's a scary audience because you know I talk to people all the time, but this is like fifty of my my closest work friends that are all like smarter and more digitally savvy than me. So like, if you say something wrong, they're pretty likely to call you out on it. So. Um, which is not necessarily as true in my day job. Um, so, uh, so I was pleased that that went well. And then in a rare uh, treat for me, I stayed for a couple days after NRF this year. Um, and there are a lot of events that other people program uh, to take advantage of everyone being in town for NRF. Uh, so PSFK is a research uh, company that does a lot of great retail content. They do a bunch of retail tours in New York uh, the week of NRF. Um, and they had kind of a, 
uh, a direct-to-consumer day where they had a bunch of uh, leaders from direct-to-consumer companies come in and talk. And so um, I got to sit in on that, and that was kind of interesting content. Um, I think I, I inadvertently got some buzz because uh, uh, unlike some of these really polished CEOs for the big retail companies, like the CEOs for some of these startups probably share more information than they should. <laughs> um, and so one of the founders of Neighborhood Goods was there. They're, they're a, a kind of new retail concept. They're a, like a retail marketplace. So vendors pay to rent space in their store. They open one store in Texas. Uh, in Dallas, they're now they just opened a second store in Manhattan, and they're about to open a third store in Austin. And in our industry, via all the talking heads, I would say they get a ton of buzz. Um, and uh, you know, the one thing they don't do is disclose like any sales data. So you know, you you never know how meaningful their sales are. Um, but the CEO at one point mentioned that their best selling SKU by volume, uh, by by number of units and dollar volume is a t-shirt with their logo on it. And so I, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking like that probably says all you need to know about, you know, how, how much of the vendors products they're selling that are paying for space in those stores. If they're, if a logo t-shirts, their best product. Ouch. Uh, Savage on social media. Yeah. I did not mean it to be super negative, but I just thought that was an interesting data point. Um, and then I went into the belly of the beast uh, our friend Scott Galloway, um, who loves his predictions, as you'll know, um, he had an event. He's a professor at NYU, and he he gave a lecture at NYU, um, kind of a couple hours sharing his a recap of his 2019 predictions and and uh, doing his 2020 predictions. Um, so I sat in on that and. Uh, um, I don't think any of the predictions were very new to those of us that follow him regularly. Like, you know, he tends to be pretty repetitive. And, and so these were mostly repetitive uh, predictions. But there was a question and answer session afterwards. And I thought the question and answer session was really interesting. And people people asked him good questions and he had, uh, you know, insightful answers. So that that part was fun. Yeah. He's a uh, very anti Sheryl Sandberg, Casper. And then he's he's been anti Tesla for a long time and he's gotten his like face ripped off by Tesla. Yeah. So it's funny predicting and they'll go bankrupt and you know, like crazy and it's fraud. And and yeah. Yeah. He thinks it's way overvalued and he um, it's, it's kind of funny because he talks about, he, he like, he openly talks about this. He's like, people that agree with me tend to agree with me on most things. Like, like he's, you know, philosophically aligned on most things, but he's like, most of the people that follow me, like Tesla way more than me. Um, and they have way more digital privacy concerns than I have. So he's like, whenever I share my position on those two things, I tend to get creamed. And so like, it almost became a joke, like people standing up that were like challenging him on his Tesla predictions. Um, and like, you know, people came up and like made an argument for the Tesla valuation and why it was reasonable and stuff. And so there, there were some pretty funny back and forth on that stuff. And he was making fun of the fact that like, that's most likely what he'll get murdered for. Um, and then he, he did a podcast after this event where him and Kara Swisher, who generally agree on most things on their podcast, like got in a pretty heated argument on the whole, should Apple unlock the terrorist phones? And, and Scott comes down heavily on absolutely Apple, like should, should immediately unlock the terrorist phones 
and the privacy concerns are kind of uh, a BS in Scott's mind. And so, and, and he, he recognizes that like, that's the other thing he gets a lot of heat for is that most people that follow him don't agree with that position. Wasn't Swisher at NRF like interviewing a politician or something? She was. Uh, I don't remember who she interviewed because that was during one of my meetings. So I missed it. I think it was Uh, Paul Ryan. I didn't understand what the heck that had to do with retail. Yeah. So there's kind of a tradition at NRF. Like a big part of NRF's job is lobbying, is federal lobbying. Um, And that's particularly relevant right now um, because like these privacy laws that all the states pass are passing have potential major intended and unintended ramifications on retailers. Like a lot of them like arguably make it illegal to run a loyalty program, for example. Um, so, so the lobbying is a big deal. NRF, it's a lot of their energy is in lobbying. And so if you look at the keynote speakers over the last several years at NRF, they had uh, Bill Clinton shortly after he went out of office. They had George Bush Sr. shortly after he went out of uh, office. And so they tend to have a a big name politician. And this year it was Paul Ryan, but I, I didn't get to see it. I, I didn't hear any particularly newsworthy things come out of it, but I, I can't speak to it firsthand. Very cool. Um, so that was my interrupt recap. NRF? Did that kind of match up with what you, you followed on social media in the news or did I give what you? Well, it seemed like kind of the, the timing was interesting because, um, you know, at the same time, you had the Casper S1 filing dropped, and this is kind of pivoting to general news, but but it kind of overlapped with NRF a fair amount. Um, and then you had a fair amount of bad news from Q4. Um, and some of this, it's hard to tell if it was just kind of there was a bunch of retailers that are kind of in that Molly Geddon bucket that held on through Q4. It's kind of crazy to once you make it to August, you, know, you might as well not close any stores until until January. So it's hard to know how much is kind of an overhang, kind of a holiday overhang and how much is kind of, you know, the holiday actually wasn't as good as we thought. Um, were those some of the topics at, at NRF? Yeah. So not in the formal presentations, but in the sort of hallway conversations, this, this was a big point. Right. And, um, you know, you and I have talked about it on the show. We were talking about it in December that I, I sort of felt like it was going to be a soft holiday that, you know, there were going to be, profitability challenges in talking to people at this show. One of the interesting things that kind of reaffirms that it was a soft holiday is um, there is apparently like a ton of excess product in the market, which has not been the case the last several holidays. And so retailers are getting asked to take a bunch of, you know, deeply discounted inventory from manufacturers and what we would call distressed inventory um, that there's a glut of that on the market this year. And so that's a bad sign. It means retailers didn't sell through all their inventory. The manufacturer didn't move as many units as they expected. And now they're going to liquidate all that inventory at low cost, which you know means uh, consumers' closets are going to fill up with, with cheap clothes. Um, and you know it's going to be longer before they can they can sell new stuff and you know a bunch more of this like, you know, uh, desirable brands will show up in TJ Maxx and uh, places like that. Uh, so there's a bunch of negative ramifications. And, you know, it's the the my theory is like it's for two reasons, like that we just did have a soft holiday and people didn't sell as much as they wanted. Um, but the last several holidays, I feel like retailers have been super careful about uh, constraining their inventory and being really smart and using a lot of new modern tools to predict demand better. And so they they actually 
we're in really good inventory positions the last couple of years. And what's different this year is t- uh, potential fear of tariffs. And so my my theory, which I have no way to validate, but my theory is that a lot of manufacturers, you know, they're getting their goods from China, made more stuff before tariffs kicked in as a hedge against potential tariffs. Um, and so they just ended up with higher inventory positions and they've been, you know, trying to sell that through to retailers. Uh, and so, it, you know, we have a, a glut of product and that that actually bodes poorly, you know, for the the end of Q4, but also for Q1 sales across a bunch of retail categories. Yeah. Um, so like during the show or, or around the show, you know, there were a bunch, you know, holiday earnings announcements started to come in. Um, before this show, uh, MasterCard released their um, uh, sort of holiday recap. And MasterCard has this product called Spending Pulse where they aggregate uh, and anonymize all the the spending ha- uh, behaviors of everyone that carries a MasterCard branded card. Um, and they said holiday retail sales were up 3.4% um, from November 1st to December 24th. And the online sales were up almost 19%. And so those are decent numbers that would comp pretty, you know, favorably with last year. I think those are very similar to last year's numbers. Um, and that would imply that everyone had a decent holiday. Uh, but then the individual retailers started announcing their earnings, and nobody has earnings that seems like they jive with that MasterCard number, right? So so not shocking that JCPenney was down, but they were down, you know, lower than expectations. So they were down 7.5%, which is huge. Um, we alluded to this earlier, but Kohl's was down 0.2%, and they've been one of the the you know, better performers in the apparel category for a while. So the fact that they're down was was alarming and surprising. Uh, L, L Brands was down 3%. Macy's was down uh, 0.7%, which they had been up the previous quarter. So that was a, a big holiday miss. And then I think, to me, the one that was most surprising and alarming and kind of triggered some some stock alarm bells was uh, Target. Um, and their same-store sales were only up 1.4% versus... 5.7% last year. So so that was a big mix against their guidance. Um and uh you know you you listen to that bloodbath of retailers like almost nobody, you know, performing above their comps and you try to reconcile that with the whole industry being up 3.4% and it it just doesn't make sense to me. I think I I think that Mastercard number is just wrong or or like there there's something unique about Mastercard carrying people that, you know, is different than other spending. Yeah. Yeah. The, the jury's out, I think until we see Amazon and they report on the 30th and we'll be here on the Jason Scott show, recapping that for everybody. That's going to be really, really important. And then the second most important is going to be Walmart. And I'm not sure they should be reporting in that same time frame. Let's see. Let me ask an intern. You. Oh, they're in Feb 18th. Okay, they're in that off cycle. Yeah. Yeah. So it's going to be interesting to see um, how that goes because, yeah. you know, if they both didn't do well, then it really is a head scratcher. But even if they, you know, it, let's say Amazon grew like 25% or something, it, it's, it kind of makes the, 
you could get the e-commerce number to 19%, but like what the heck happened to the rest of retail who actually grew? Um, everyone that we know that's reporting didn't. So it'd have to be Walmart or, you know, someone else. I don't know who. Yeah. Costco. Yeah. Maybe it's the dollar stores. Maybe there's, there has been a bunch of strength in kind of like what we would call the value plays, the dollar stores, the wholesale clubs, the TJ Maxx's. Maybe those are the guys that kind of saved the day and um, they just haven't reported yet. Yeah, but I think no matter how you slice it, like this is another version of bifurcation that like, you know, if if holiday sales are robust, like they were not robust for everyone, that there were, you know, huge winners and losers. Um, and, you know, if, if that was the case, which it certainly seems like it was, um, you know, you're going to see that play out in, you know, future store closures and bankruptcies and all the other things that, you know, retailers have to do when they start to get into distressed situations. And, you know, along those lines, I think we've we've already seen a bunch of uh, announcements now that they've gone through holiday of uh, upcoming store closures. So, yeah. Any other news you want to cover? Um, I mean, those are the big things like. Uh, just to recap the store closures real quick, like that was like Express is closing 100 stores. JCPenney is closing six more stores. Uh, Pier One is closing half their stores. Bed Bath & Beyond is closing 40 stores. Uh, a slightly surprising one to me is um, Bose, which had a chain of company-owned stores, um, is closing all of their bricks and mortar. They're going to be, you know, a pure brand and, and direct online sales only. So... You know, uh, a significant amount of store closures to start the year. Um, so kind of falling into your whole, uh, you know, Mulligan, uh story that you like to al- always talk about. Um, and then I guess just a couple of small little news items that are like, you know, pretty interesting in the commerce space. Uh, Google made an acquisition of this uh, company called Pointy. Um, and I, I wouldn't expect people to necessarily recognize Pointy, but Pointy is a uh, a data company um, that makes it super easy for uh, particularly small retailers to upload their store inventory to Google. So that lets you do local inventory ads where, where like, you know, you do a search for a coat and Google says, oh, that coat's in stock in this store that's a block from you. Um, and it also, you know, facilitates the the sort of instant purchase in Google and a lot of other things. And so it's, it was interesting that Google's acquiring this capability to help retailers onboard um, their inventory to Google much easier. Um, that, you know, could be the first of a bunch of steps we see in Google trying to get more serious about commerce. Um, and then, uh, you know, the gap had previously announced that they were going to split old Navy off from the rest of the company. Um, and they kind of had assigned CEOs uh, and then this month they announced that they're actually not going to do that. They fired that CEO and the, the son of the founder like came back to run the company. So, so a lot of, uh, drama going on at the gap right now. Yep. Hmm. Uh, changed their mind, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think they were another example. Like I, I, I don't know. I think at a high level, the story was a bunch of the Gap brands are underperforming. The one Gap brand that had been performing strongly was Old Navy. And, you know, so there's an argument that like uh, Old Navy wasn't getting uh, full credit uh, in the public markets because they're being dragged down by these other brands. So you split up the strong brand Old Navy from the weaker brands. um, And, you know, maybe you you can carve out more value. Um, 
that of course ignores the fact that like all of these brands share a shared infrastructure, the same IT stuff, the same e-commerce stuff, the same supply chain stuff. And when you split them up, you got to spend a bunch of money to rebuild that, you know, uh, for both companies. And, uh, and I think the, the thing that made this untenable was, uh, Old Navy didn't have a great holiday either. And so, you know, they were left with the prospect of potentially splitting up and having two distressed brands, neither one performing very well. And, uh, you know, they just spent a bunch of money and, and you know, uh, all, their employees' focus was all put on this this uh, uh, split instead of focusing on on uh, customers and, and the right product and the right right brand positioning for that stuff. So so I think it became scary and they they pulled back. Must be frustrating. Imagine if you were on that team and you probably had to separate all the point of sale systems and the customer databases and uh, you know, yeah. Yeah. Oh, like and I'm pretty sure, far down the path. Like there. I'll be honest, I'm sure there were people that were far down that path, and the whole time they were doing it, were saying, "This is stupid. We shouldn't be doing this." And now they're pissed that they wasted all that time because <laughs> it, yeah, it's not going to see the light of day. But you know, sometimes those are unavoidable things. Um, uh, like I, you know, they're. They're a storied brand. I, I hope they find their way through it. Um, but, Scott, that's probably going to be a good place to wrap it up because uh, we we have hit our usual one-hour mark, so we've uh, used up more than our allotted listener time. Um, as always, if uh, people have a comment or question, feel free to, to drop us a note on Twitter or Facebook. Uh, and for sure, uh, we need to get those iTunes reviews going for the, the 2020 year. Fresh reviews are super important. So if you haven't written a review for our podcast yet, we'd love it if you jump over to iTunes and write us that review. And make them five stars. Thanks, everybody. Yeah. Until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 